next two sections in the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, Jesus is teaching on sexual sin and on divorce. Our culture every day is seeking to transform the society's views on sex and marriage. The moral revolutionaries of our day will not stop at nothing to change the way and to normalize sin. Between our relationships with one another, between the relationships between a spouse, we've become so morally confused that we can't even, for example, call a pregnant woman a woman. As one recent headline this past week said this, pregnant people should avoid getting the COVID-19 vaccine. You know that we're in trouble when we can't call a woman a woman. During the pandemic, most Americans were forced to work from home because of these statewide quarantines. Sexually explicit sites were on a rise. Studies were done that when Zoom was down, sexually explicit sites went up by 6 to 20%. On a single day, five times the world's population, 18 billion individual hits at just one of these sexually explicit sites. While we may be in the midst of a pandemic, we are also simultaneously in the midst of an epidemic of biblical proportion. Our society has taken the training wheels off when it comes to sexual sin. What many of you experienced and went through in the 1960s and later into the 1970s would make those folks blush when you consider what is acceptable today in our society. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, that the moral revolutionaries of our day will not stop. This is why the letters LGBTQ has a little plus sign at the end. Because it is left to the imagination, left to continue to go wherever one would take it. But as Christians, we are called to be a distinct people in the midst of a very broken world. And it's very easy for us to sit in here and throw stones and to lob accusations and to point fingers and not to think that you and I don't struggle with the same sin. It's easy to see, hey, the problem's out there in the world and miss that the problem's right here in our very own hearts. Jesus will later in the Gospel of Matthew tell the Pharisees and his disciples that it's out of the heart of man comes these sinful perversions. Out of your heart and my heart. And, and so the last thing that you and I want to do is to begin to think that, man, these are some real worldly problems, but to understand that the enemy could cause us and tempt us with them equally. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us how we are to be a distinct people. He used the illustration of being salt and light in an unsavory and dark world. It's a really good, vivid picture of how you and I are to live every day. 
To understand that this world isn't warming up to Jesus. That your neighbors aren't becoming more soft to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that this world is rather getting further and further away. And so we've got to run after them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we can't be running after them with the gospel of Jesus Christ if we ourselves are not pursuing purity in our own hearts. It's hard to lob accusations. It's why Christians are often called hypocrites. When we're willing to condemn the world, but but we're not willing to clean our own house. And so this morning and over the next few weeks, Jesus, man, he really hits hard. He hits home. He hits home with so many of us because, you know, we kind of tend to smell more like the world than we do like Jesus. Because we tend to hang around the world and act like the world rather than being salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. And so this morning and over the next few weeks, brothers and sisters, don't retreat from God's word and and kind of put the, the barrier up and say, man, these are tough passages, but rather come humbly to God's word and and just allow him to speak truth into your life so that you might be holy as he is holy, that your heart might be pure. As he has called us to be pure, So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter five this morning. We're going to consider verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus' point? When this section and the following, Jesus here is calling his followers to uphold the marriage covenant by striving for sexual purity and taking the sacrificial, sacrificial steps to deal with temptation. And so the purpose of our time is, is for us to understand that Jesus, in a sort of negative way, upholds marriage by exposing those things that seek to undermine marriage. In other words, Jesus is calling his disciples not to be like the Pharisees, not to be like the religious leaders who thought, oh, I've never committed adultery. I must be okay." But rather to get back to the heart of the matter, as he did with anger last week, and to understand that you and I fall short of God's glory in a lot of ways. And so this morning, Jesus outlines three steps that kingdom people take Concerning marriage. First, kingdom people uphold the covenant of marriage. Secondly, kingdom people strive for purity. And thirdly, kingdom people take sacrificial steps to deal with temptation. So we're going to consider these three points this morning. First, we see that Jesus upholds here the marriage covenant. 
He begins by saying there in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here Jesus is referring in verse 27 to the seventh commandment from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Thou shall not commit adultery. The law of Moses was significant in its demands on marriage and family. The law of God upheld God's design and forbade the destruction of the family through sexual sin. The people of Israel were to be distinct and different than the world around them. The law was not only to uphold marriage, but to guard the mistreatment of women, which was so prevalent in the wider society. As Deuteronomy chapter 22 makes clear, if a man is found to be lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. See, the nation of Israel was to be a distinct people, a different people, by remaining sexually pure, by dealing with it through death. I mean, fascinatingly enough, only murder and adultery resulted in capital punishment. Now, for you and I, we might think, my goodness gracious, people would die for that? People would actually put, be put to death at capital punishment for committing adultery? You see, you get a sense of God's uh, importance, the significance which God places upon the moral purity among the nation. In fact, later on in the prophets, this accusation of adultery would be placed upon the actual nation, the whole nation, as they sort of went after other nations and lusted after them. The Old Testament uh, sexual ethic really finds its practical rebuke in the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 6, you get a, a really a great picture of uh, Solomon leading and teaching his son to be wise. And so, for example, in Proverbs 6.22, Solomon writes, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Adultery ultimately is that sort of final step in self-destruction, the Bible says. Jesus here is not throwing aside the seventh commandment, but rather giving a fuller interpretation, a fuller understanding of it, just as he did with anger and saying that, look, you might think that you're okay in regards to murder, but have you ever been angry? While a Pharisee might easily say, I've never committed adultery, can he claim that he's never lusted after a woman? You see, as Jesus did with anger, so now he does with lust. He, he doesn't want his disciples to fall in that sort of trap that so often happens that, that, oh, as long as I don't touch another woman. Dr. Kevin Ezell, the one who, uh, brother who leads the North American Mission Board, um, when he gives instructions to NAM employees at uh, the annual retreat, he, he has to tell them that, um, that, Pornography is an issue, and we need to avoid that issue. And, and uh, he, he tells a story about how he had a church member a number of years ago who would tell him when, when he was pastoring in, in Louisville that, that, that he hadn't looked at any pornography, though he had, it, because the, the man said because he didn't pay for it, it, it wasn't pornography. And so, so, so this is kind of an example of what we do. We're like, oh, I, I didn't touch anything. I, I didn't do those things. And Jesus here is drilling down on the root of the matter. If anger is the root of murder, then lust is the root of sexual immorality. It's not that 
He isn't concerned about adultery or that the Old Testament was insignificant to deal with the matter. Rather, he is putting forward a distinctive of God's people. Jesus knew he was a sovereign, almighty, all-knowing. He he knew that this was going to be a continuing issue. The kingdom of God is a people marked off by sexual purity, not only in action, adultery, but also in thought. Paul similarly warns the church in Corinth, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to what he writes. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must uphold the marriage covenant by calling sin, sin. That any deviation from God's design for marriage is an immoral act. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we want to uphold a big biblical worldview concerning marriage as a congregation by our clear orthodox teaching and doctrinal stance of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. I've used this illustration a hundred times and I'll use it again this week because I think it's helpful. A number of years ago, um, like so many of you, I know a number of you spouses were deacons in Southern Baptist life. And you, you know one of the questions that was always asked when, when deacon nominations came around. What was the question? Well, if he was divorced, he couldn't serve as a deacon. And the question I always asked as a young, dumb pastor was, well, what about the guy who was sexually immoral? What about the guy who's been married to his wife for 50 years, but he cheats on her every week? What about the guy who, you know, has struggled with sexual sin? He's never been divorced, but has he been faithful? You see, it's so often you and I can can tend to put these sort of boundaries on the law and say, oh, I've not done that, then I must be okay. More than that, we must understand that our stance on biblical marriage is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. In other words, when people lob bombs at us and say that we're on the wrong side of history, we just have to remind them that we've not changed our position, they have. We we just believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years and what the Bible has taught since the very beginning, that, that men and women are to be united together, that sexual intimacy is to occur only in the context of marriage. That anything beyond that is a distortion of God's will and God's purposes and only leads to death. As Hebrews 13.4 reminds us, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Friends, as our world has normalized this, I mean, I don't think you could probably watch a TV show I mean, like a sitcom or, or some sort of drama, you know, in the, the sort of primetime channels that does not normalize adultery. You and I are accustomed from, from co-workers to neighbors to family members, even our own lives. We are accustomed to see sexual immorality as normal. And when that happens, you and I can become confused And not live a distinct life. To see that that's normal and okay. Rather than to see that that is an affront to the kingdom of God. 
As kingdom people, we are to be salt and light. We are to be that by, as Jesus instructs here, upholding the marriage covenant, by holding high marriage, by taking lust seriously and dealing with temptation. We, of all people, are not to be those who flirt around with it, but seek to kill it. And so we see here in verse 29, Jesus goes on secondly, that kingdom people uphold the marriage covenant by striving for sexual purity. Look there in verse 28 what Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone, anyone, uh, no, no exclusions, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus desired his disciples to strive for purity in heart. They were to take seriously the temptation to lust after women. These sort of burning desires that ultimately would lead to adulterous affairs. He, he's guarding his disciples and then later his disciples will teach us to do the same. The word that Jesus uses here isn't some sort of passive look at a woman. I remember a number of years ago, brother was all uh, amped up because he thought that he was, you know, every time he looked at a woman, he was committing adultery. And uh, no, that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus, uh, the idea here is of a lengthy stare. The idea is of of a progressive onlooking with the intent of of committing some sin. One who gazes, that turns to fantasy. In the Greek word, the word here uh, for woman is the same for wife. And so Jesus may have sort of the idea of lusting after another man's wife. Sort of maybe combining the seventh and the tenth commandment together. Not to covet your neighbor's stuff, and particularly his wife. Regardless, Jesus here is after the heart of the matter. Notice the realm, again, verse 28. With her in the realm of his heart. Jesus, as I said earlier, will later go after the heart of the matter in that he's saying that adultery comes out of the heart of man. Our depravity leads to these things. So what we need to deal with is the heart. And frankly, one cannot read Jesus's words here with not having David in mind. David going out on the on the balcony that day just happened to be out there that day. At that particular moment, at that particular time. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 22 tells us that David gazed upon Bathsheba. In other words, he didn't just, oh man. No, he he intently lusted. We are told that David gazed upon her. David didn't just stumble into this particular sin. He He didn't just like, oh wow, I didn't know that was going to happen to me that day. No, he knew where he was and what he was doing up there at that particular time. And he did not turn his eyes away, but rather we are told that he gazed upon her. Or in the words of Jesus, a man who lustfully looks at another woman commits adultery. It was the intent of David's own heart, we are told there in Psalm 51, to lustfully look at Bathsheba. This is why he's confessing his sin of a heart sin. See, David's not like, hey, it's an eye sin, it's a head sin. No, it was a heart sin. David goes right to the heart of the matter in Psalm 51. And so does Jesus. 
It's interesting that, that Solomon warns his own son in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 6. The righteousness of the upright delivers him, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lusts. Solomon describes lust as a, as, a, as a conqueror, one who imprisons the captive. Or similarly in James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, we are told there that, that sin, that, that, that lust is a spiraling staircase that descends to death. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. And listen, then, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's grown up and it's a big boy, it leads to death. Friends, sin always starts small in the heart. An unchecked heart. An unguarded heart. No one wakes up in the morning. I, in all the years I've pastored and, and counseled brothers or sisters, None of those conversations have ever been, you know, one morning I woke up and I, and I wanted to have an affair. Never happens that way. It always started small. It always started with a little lustful look, a little flirtatious talk. And, and little by little, like a snowball going, rolling down a hill, it starts as a single snowflake and it builds into this massive, destroying snowball that will destroy anything in its path. This is what Jesus is warning about. And this is why Paul, again to the church in Corinth, told them to deal with sin and particular sexual sin seriously. He gives this warning. But now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty, the idea is here that he is presently unrepentantly active in sexual immorality. He says, I don't want you to associate with anybody who's running around town claiming the name of Jesus while living in immorality. He culminates in this way in, in verses, uh, verse six or chapter six, rather in verse 18. He says this flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, Paul is saying that that sexual sin is like putting your body in self-destruct mode. The only thing that results from it is death and destruction. You will kill not only yourself, but sadly, as so many of us could testify, that sexual sin rarely stays at home. It often has an effect on those around us. It destroys not only our lives, but the lives of those. And frankly, it has a generational effect. It affects children and on down the line. But as New Testament Christians, we understand. And here's the point I want you to hear this morning, brothers and sisters. This is, this is, the, this is our stance, all right? So if you want to know, like, all right, where, let's boil this all down. Why is Jesus so concerned about this? It's because this, that lust is an attack on the Imago Dei. It is turning God's creation into an object of your own worship. You see, women are not created by God to be the object of your twisted desires, but are to be loved, cared for, and treated with respect. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that all of this sin in the world is an affront, an attack on God's creation. 
on the Imago Dei, the image of God in each one of us. As Christians, we are to strive for sexual purity, to uphold marriage and value all people created in the image of God. This is why Paul says that the ethical demands of the law can be summed up in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as he exhorts the church in Ephesus, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Have you ever noticed, maybe you haven't paid attention, how much attention the New Testament gives to sexual ethics? There's a lot of text. I mean, we could just go on all day long with cross-reference after cross-reference concerning lust, sexual immorality, adultery, divorce. Why? Because the New Testament church is being birthed out of a culture that was so morally confused, so morally evil and devaluing of women, that women could be viewed as an object of one's lust and still be morally praised. Men of great authority could sleep with any woman he could choose. And frankly, many of our Western civilization laws were born out of the New Testament Christian ethic. Tim Keller writes this on the topic. The early church's revolutionary sexual ethic was that sex was only for within a mutual, whole self-giving, super consensual, lifelong covenant. It was not for people only to give a part of themselves, but the whole self to the other legally, economically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. The Greek word that the writers of the New Testament used were infused with new meaning by the, by the writers themselves that the Greek culture did not even know. It was meant that any Thing out, any sex outside of marriage was forbidden. It was radically based on an egalitarian principle that the husband's body belonged to the wife and the wife to the husband. That meant that anything outside of marriage exploited or abused and violated this new ethic in the Christian life. This ethic replaced the wrong Greco-Roman model of sexuality that men of higher status, even if married, were allowed to demand sex with anyone of lower social status. The first laws on rape and sex without consent grew from this Christian ethic. Jesus' teaching here is countercultural. Countercultural to the first century Judeo-Christian world or uh, Judeo world, countercultural to the Greco-Roman world, and countercultural to the American culture today. New Christian, New Testament Christians, we are to strive and uphold these values. As a church, we want to stand on the biblical doctrines that we uphold and that we study and that we that we value. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like if we put the same energy that we as evangelical Christians put behind ending abortion in America that we put behind ending pornography in America? I mean, what was once relegated to the fringes of society has now been placed front and center. Access to sexually explicit material isn't for late, late, late night TV anymore. With a few simple clicks, you can get on some of the most grotesque Sights in all of humanity. And as Christians, we must, our souls depend on it, fight against sin, not only in our own hearts, but in the wider society. 
We need to lead the way, brothers and sisters. We need not turn a blind eye on this. Dads, listen to me for just a moment here. Here's the issue that you must understand. Statistically speaking, the guy your daughter is going to potentially marry has at some point in his life struggled with the addictive nature of pornography. And studies have shown that this addiction leads to distortions in the mind, in the way one values other human beings, the way they see and respect and love. It has a lasting effect. And so you and I need to lead out and living holy lives. One of the leading causes of sex trafficking in the world is what everyone passively enjoys, what they call sexual sin. And as Christians, we don't want to be afraid of it. We want to deal with it. We want to deal with it in the world, but first we need to deal with it in our own hearts. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that, that whatever we're being tempted after is what we will, we will be one with. And this morning, my question for you is, what are you lusting after? Perhaps for you, it's not lusting after a woman, but it's lusting after something. You want something. You want to worship something outside of God's will for your life. As Christian people, we are to live these distinct salt and light life by pursuing it. Well, how do we do it? Well, Jesus tells us how here in verses 29 and 30. He says this, you need to take sacrificial steps to deal with temptation. Look at what Jesus says here in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus uses this metaphor here in verses 29 and 30 to describe a really a sacrificial, we could say radical, but sacrificial approach one must take towards sexual sin. To be clear, Jesus is not advocating some sort of self-mutilation here, right? Because after all, if you pluck out one eye, you still have one good eye to lust after, right? So the point here isn't, isn't self-mutilation. Rather, Jesus is describing someone who is willing to lose a small but no less significant and important part of them in order to flee sexual sin. What, does, what Jesus describes here is graphic in nature. Cut it off, throw it away. Jesus uses this graphic language in order to really reinforce the radical approach one must have towards sin. Jesus, I don't think, could be any clearer than this illustration that he uses. That those who are unwilling to deal with their temptations are not worthy of the kingdom of God. He says as much when he says to them, hey, if, you don't, if you're not willing to lose an arm for the kingdom... Well, guess what? Your whole body is going to be thrown into hell. What's more important to you? Not having internet access or going to hell? What's more important to you? Having some sort of filter on your browser or going to hell? 
What's more important with you? Talking openly and honestly about your sin? Living in the light? Or going to hell? Oh, I don't want people to know that I'm, I, I'm that kind of sinner. Well, friend, if you don't, you're going to be a whole, with a whole bunch of people just like that in hell. As we read earlier, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, just listen how that runs in the face of what you hear every day. The sexually immoral will not, emphatic. In other words, Paul says, will not, no, not, never inherit the kingdom of God. Never. Not that those who were once sexually immoral and who have repented and trusted. No, the kingdom of God is for such people. No, he means those who, who, who are like, nah, it's all good. It's okay. It didn't hurt anybody. I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, who am I really hurting? I, I mean, it's just in my head. I've not touched anybody. I've not done anything wrong. I mean, it's all up here. And what does it hurt? It's a little dabble, a little you know, flirting around. It'll be all right. No. As Paul warned earlier, as we heard, not to even associate with somebody who claims the name of brother, who claims to be a Christian. Brother, sister, what sacrificial steps do you need to take to guard your heart from sin? Men, what kind of steps do you need to take to deal with this? What accountability do you need to have in place for the Websites you visit or the entertainment you consume or the women that you're conversing with. Where are you being tempted to sin? You know, Jesus calls his disciples to live in the light. Sometimes one of the easiest remedies to this is by living in the light. By being honest, by talking about it, by, by having accountability with other brothers, by praying and not doing it alone, but with a community. You see, this principle of sacrificially dealing with sin applies not only here in the context of sexual sin, but Jesus will use it later in Matthew 18 to describe any sin. So this morning you might think, hey man, this is just a message for men this morning. No, 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 Jesus has a message for you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Do you hope to see God as your Savior one day? Then flee your sin. In the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brother, sister, have you slayed your sin today? Have you chopped off an arm, plucked out an eye? Perhaps no better illustration, biblically speaking, than the radical steps that Joseph took to flee the temptations of Potiphar's wife. And he was willing to lose everything. I mean, he could have hung around, just kind of see where things led, you know. And what she's, I'm not sure what she's up to. No, he got out of town. He, he left his, his cloak behind. He, he left everything behind. He didn't know what would happen. He desired to live pure before God. He was willing to even lose his job. And ultimately, we read that he was imprisoned for it. But, you know, in all of that account of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife, we never hear regret upon his lips. Man, I should have just done that. Just, you know, just paid the price. What sacrificial steps do you need to take today? Brothers, this is why you have 
and strive for godly elders. This is what we're here for, to be able to help you think through these, help, help lead you to being godly. This morning, my question for each one of us is before we can help one another, we have to help ourselves. We have to be willing to cut a few arms off and a few legs and pluck out some eyes if we hope to follow Jesus. And friends, this morning, you might think, man, I have fallen short in this area time and time again. Friend, where have we not fallen short? Brother, where have we not fallen short in this? Men, where have we not lusted after another woman? We are reminded this morning, as we're confronted in our sin, of the need of the righteous blood of Christ. This is why you need Jesus, friend. This is why Jesus came. Not for you to wallow in self-pity and discouragement and despair, but to understand what can wash away my sin. Why are we sing that song? Because we understand that, that these type of sins creates a sense of shame and darkness and, and a cloud of doubt and discouragement, but, but, but Jesus' blood washes it away. And you can live in the light. And we as Christians live in the light. We, we're okay. We're honest about our struggles. We're honest about our sin because what can wash us sin? Wait, it's just Jesus has washed it away. And so do not repel, do not, do, not, do not recoil into the darkness, but rather come into the light. Let Jesus deal with your sin. Let Trust me. It is better to live in the light than to live in darkness. Come into the light. Come into the light. We will never cast you away because Jesus won't cast you away if you will walk in the light. Come into the light. But we must take it seriously. We must see where we've become numb to these type of, of sins in, in this culture. Don't just because it's accepted, just because it's normal, just because you see it somehow accepted. No, we need to take it seriously. We need to understand as the Old Testament execution for the immoral. So we need to understand that if we live immorally, we don't need to be being executed in this life only. As Jesus warned, his, warned the Pharisees and his disciples, don't, don't be worried about people who can kill you. <laughs> don't be stressed about that. Don't be stressed about government power. He says, be stressed. You want to be stressed about something? Be stressed about the one who can so, throw your soul into hell if you don't repent and turn and believe in me. Take sacrificial steps to deal with your temptations and sins. Brothers and sisters, let us be a church. Let us be a people who uphold the marriage covenant by striving pure, for purity. By being honest and, and striving for it. Yeah, we're going to fall. Yeah, we're going to stumble. Yeah, we're going to fall on our face. But we're striving for holiness. Each of us, as a, as a member of this church, have a responsibility to hold up the marriages in this church, to hold up one another and brothers and sisters, holding one another up. Though we personally may not struggle with a particular sin, doesn't mean we don't help others who do. We're all in this journey to the celestial city together. Let us not abandon one another in this journey, but let us help one another, praying diligently Our souls, brothers and sisters, are far too important to allow sin to drag us to hell. Let us boldly go on the offense. Let us cut off arms, pluck out eyes in the name of a pure heart. I leave you with this.
In the words of John Owen, set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sin. Listen, his blood is the greatest sovereign remedy for sin sick souls. Live in the light of Christ's great work and you will die a conqueror. You will, though the good providence of God, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Let that be our prayer for God's glory today. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you just needing your power, the power of the Spirit, just to help us to walk in the light. To confess our need of Jesus and the, the blood of Christ. And, and Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who strive for holiness and purity of heart. That we would not be tempted by the ways of the world, but that we would be willing participants in the divine will of God. And faithfully following your will for our life. Help us as we rebel against you to, to, to confess our need of Christ and And Lord, I pray you would make us holy as even as Christ is holy. Do this work for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.